I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite our history and heritage professionals to rise up in protest. The podcast where our historians might stop short of deeds, but definitely have the words. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I am here, as always, with my partner in universal suffering, if not suffrage, Kyle Glover. Hello everyone, I am suffering today. I've got an awful cold, so please do excuse the sniffing and coughing and general whimpering. And this week, dear Ragers, we are flying back to the troublesome world of Edwardian politics and protest. And joining us in Smashing the Windows of Myth, we welcome today historian, tour guide, and founder of Women of London Walking Tours, Becky Laxton Bass. Becky, welcome to History Rage. Hi there. Thank you for having me. <laughs> You're welcome. Feeling angry? Angry? Yeah. Uh, You're sounding happy. <laughs> Happy's good. Happy's good. <laughs> Happy's good. Well, we'll get, we, we can soon change that. <laughs> so you came to us by recommendation from our Series 3 Rage Fest with uh, Alex Churchill and Andy Locke. And my God, that was a Rage Fest. I'm still getting over it. But can you take a moment to just introduce yourself to our fellow protesters and give us an insight into your background and what Women of London Tours does? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I always kind of adored history. I was very privileged. I had some good history teachers at school. Um, so I went on to uh, foolishly study it at university, not knowing what I was going to do with it. And uh, turns out tour guiding and history go really well. So I accidentally became a tour guide seven years ago. And right. then after just a couple of years of doing kind of general London tours, I got yeah a little fed up of talking about men all the time. So I decided to form Women of London so I can instead talk about women. So that's kind of my background. Um, yeah. But yeah, just do still do London tours in general and yeah, but focus mainly on Women of London now. So, and then we're talking kind of any Women of London of any period of history. 
Yeah, kind of. We try to organize our tours within, well, we do walking tours, so then we're walking distance. So mm-hmm. I can't, you know, start with a tour in Camden and finish in Brixton. So I'm kind of restricted geographically a lot of the time uh, and also visually because we have to be able to show people things. So yeah. if I'm just standing in a random place and there's nothing to see, that's not really going to work. So a lot of the tours are based around kind of statues, memorials, historical buildings. Um, but yeah, that means that we can have quite an overlap of different women from different classes different periods of time um some aren't even british you know they've migrated yeah. here so you know it can be a real variety hey yeah because we always thought about london historical tours you mentioned there about doing things visually pretty much every time i've gone to london it's either a in a constant state of renovation or b just completely different and how often do you have to keep like completely changing tours because the thing that you were talking about is just not there anymore? I would say I wouldn't have to reroute the tour completely, but just this afternoon there was scaffolding over a plaque. And so I just said to my guest, you're just going to have to trust me. It's there. <laughs> <laughs> I promise I'm not making this up. So I think, yeah, I think sometimes it can just be on the tour. I'm like, oh, no, we're not going to see that today. And you just kind of have to roll with that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good work. And it's nice to get somebody who's kind of from public history mm-hmm. um, in on the show as well, because I don't say anything against academics, but we have a lot of academics and a lot of authors and book people, but pe- people that actually get out there and, take history to a crowd that doesn't know it likes history is, yeah. is quite refreshing. Keep it up. It's quite, it is quite a difficult thing for sure. I think, um, you know, when I first became a guide, I probably would never have come on a podcast and recorded because I would have been too nervous. So I think it teaches <laughs> you how to just talk to people and you just have to do it or you're going to fail. So it's quite a tough, a tough thing being a public historian in many ways, but the reward is you get to, walk around and my office is outside so yeah well okay so moving on from the things that you enjoy doing to the things that you hate (laughs) hearing okay this this is what history rage is all about so would you please with all the emotion that you feel it's worth please tell our baying mob what you wish people would just stop believing or get over So this was a really difficult question for me to answer, because when it comes to the kind of themes we're talking about, there was about a short list of about 10 things. But I've decided the one thing that if I could get people to stop believing is that women got the vote in 1918 because they were really effective and helpful during the First World War. That is the thing that I think grinds my gears more than anything, because it completely misunderstands who A, who got the vote in 1918, and yeah. be what women were actually doing during the First World War as well. So it's a, it's kind of misleading on two sides. And so if people could just stop believing one thing, that would be it. That that would be the one. So uh, so we're into the we're, we're into the world of the suffragist, the suffragette, yeah, uh, and all of the stuff that goes in and amongst all that. And I've I've, I've looked into it for a project that I'm doing myself, and it is massively complicated. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like the different types of parties, the different types of politics within those parties. Like, you know, even just London, there's like many different types of 
like headquarters for London-based parties, and they're not all corresponding. They don't all want the same thing, and yeah, it is. It, they also do lots of things after the kind of First World War, so it isn't just like one movement. We got our aim, we succeeded, and we're done. Like it's so complex. Okay, so let's just outline, if we can, then um, some of who these uh, parties are and so forth. But basically, if we're talking. Women going after the votes. Yeah. First question is, what is the difference between a suffragette and a suffragist? And okay. what organisations beyond the WSPU are, are involved in this fight? So I think one of the biggest differences, uh, I feel like the word suffrage gets thrown around a lot in those kind of yeah. late 18, early 1900s. And the word suffragette is actually coined like later. I think it's like 1906 or something around those times. Um, so for me and how I think historians have reflected on it, suffragists is a general term for anyone who was more of like a, I want to say like peaceful campaigner. So someone mm-hmm. who kind of would attend marches, but wouldn't necessarily smash a window. Um, and they would generally belong to the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, which is the party led by um, by Millicent Garrett Fawcett, um, who now has the statue in Parliament Square. And yeah. then on the reverse of that, the suffragettes would be a general term for those who would take part in more militant activity. However, again, there were members who were there were women who were members of both. There were women who broke away from one, moved to the other, moved back. There were splits within the suffragette movement as well. So it's definitely a lot more complex than just suffragist, suffragette. But it is a nice way if you're just introducing people to suffrage to kind of explain it as like an umbrella term almost. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm hard pressed to find any political organization that doesn't break (laughs) down into cat fights and uh, and just factions uh, all, all over the place. It's great, isn't it? It's like, oh, we, it feels like because it's women, there's so much more attention. We must still get along. But actually, there are loads of different opinions and loads of different methods being adopted and used. Um, and I think the WSPU is a really good example of that because the Women's Social Political Union formed 1903, you know, and very much broke up in, in well, 1914. They paused their activities and didn't really reform in that you know, you have the breakaway of um, some of the founding members of the WSPU who break away into the Women's Freedom League because they don't like the fact that Emmeline Pankhurst has decided she's just going to run the WSPU and she's going to be the main voice and there won't be a committee. And the women involved in the WSPU are like, hang on a minute, that's not really what we signed up for. That wasn't part of the founding agreement. And we want to run this more as like a democracy rather than as a dictatorship. So (laughs) even within the WSPU, you have a split because of the way the women want to run the party and how they think it's going to get them to vote. who'd have thought that an organisation designed to win the vote for women might actually want a vote about how it goes on? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And it's just it's like just little things as well to do with funding, you know, what what kind of marches they're going to be doing, what kind of activity. And yeah, also the it's at a time where the WSPU are very much pushing the boundary a little bit. And that isolates a lot of the membership because not everyone is happy with going to prison. 
they're more civil disobedience rather than, you know, kind of something a bit more militant. So it is a really complex kind of situation. I think the Women's uh, Freedom League is a, is a great example that, um, you know, like I said, forms after an argument between some of the, the women. Um, and their their whole premise is like petitions and, but not the same as the NUWSS uh, petitions either. You know, different petitions, mm. petitioning other parliaments. It's just... Yeah, it's a bit of a mess, to be honest. One of the things that caught me by surprise, I think, as well, is that you look at, and I'll take the WSPU as an example, because I read quite a lot of copies of the Suffragette newsletter, <laughs> uh, which, which is interesting reading. But you do get all these columns in there about, you know, these are the people that are being force-fed for the cause, and these the, yeah. these are the sorts of things that, that, that we're doing, and... We, we set fire to this and that'll show them. But in amongst that, you get, you get these little clues that this is like every other little charitable and committee based society that women of a time, of any time do, because in amongst all the force feeding and the, we will strike at the heart of power, you get, and thank you very much to Mrs. Carruthers who raised three shillings at a whisk drive. Uh, and a little poets in there that go, oh, we had this jumble sale and it was great. <laughs> Just the two, those two extremes just fascinated me. Yeah, well, they had to, I mean, it's a difficult situation because for the WSPU, it was very much, you know, by by kind of 19, 12, 13, it was very much aware that, you know, there was only going to be a certain movement for the vote and they were kind of picking their battles a little bit. So supporting a, a woman who was a member of a local community like that, you know, would would have helped them. But at the same time, they are still standing those protests and doing things on bigger scales. So it's, it is a fine balance. Um, and yeah, I, I think it exists in women's movements all globally, even today. Yeah. Um, which I think is interesting for sure. <laughs> well, it's just say that they had similar sort of re, um, fundraising drives that my local branch of the British Legion would have. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I would say the WSPU did, did, you know, uh, rely a lot on its membership. It did also rely a lot on private donors. So the Pethic Lawrences, I think, are one of the biggest donors of the suffrage, uh, WSPUs, uh, up until they actually decide they've had enough of Emmeline Pankhurst and they're going to go join another group. Um, because they also wanted the committee to be a big mm. thing. So it's even just like, you know, the kind of private donors were really important to the to the suffrage movement. And a lot of the women involved in it, I mean, they came from a bit more of a middle class background. Um, I would say in that, in the WSPU in particular, this is where you get that split between the East London suffragettes and the the kind of what I call the Westminster kind of Caxton Hall based suffrage party led by Emmeline, you know, even her own daughter decides mum like working women should be the ones to get the vote first so I'm going to go support working women over in East London while you deal with middle class women in Westminster. <laughs> I have to say the more I've read on Emmeline Pankhurst as well the more I just want to split from her. <laughs> 
Yeah, I don't know. I I was reading about, you know, her kind of later life and the fact that it was Sylvia's scandal around having a baby out of wedlock that led to her not being able to run as, you know, a, a member of parliament for Whitechapel. And, you know, she broke down in tears and all this stuff. And you're just like, oh, it is hard because she was also a woman born in Victorian England. So mm-hmm. I, I do feel like, you know, she is idolised, rightfully so. You know, she, she, you know, had momentum for a movement and made it you know accessible famous and we're still talking about it today but at the same time she also had ideals that were linked to the time she was raised in so I think we have to just I always have to remind myself of that I think because otherwise you're right you do just kind of think do I want to meet this woman they say never meet your heroes so (laughs) (laughs) so outside WSPU and so tell us a little bit more about like the Women's Freedom League yeah, so like I said... They- and I'm going to wildcard you with one in a moment okay. as well, so be be ready for that. But yeah, g- give us a little insight into the sort of other groups that make up the fight for women's enfranchisement. Yeah, okay, so uh, Women's Freedom League, I've kind of mentioned a bit. You've got the Women's Tax Resistance League, which is a kind of supplement to the Women's Freedom League, and they're very much you know the no no taxation without representation um i would say mm-hmm. members of that are yeah kind of also fighting the way the law recognized women because actually married women wouldn't have to pay tax their husbands would pay it for them um but if a woman earned more than her husband he was still expected to pay the tax bill so they were a bit like well that doesn't seem fair that's um, a bit unfair yeah, speaking right? as a husband it's yeah like, come on <laughs> uh equality guys uh so so uh they they very much were about boycotting taxes. So you would see property being seized um, and things like that. And I think a member of that um, was Sophia uh, Dulap Singh, um, who was the goddaughter of Queen Victoria. So you've got that yes. Indian link into the suffrage movement. And um, there was actually a London-based Indian Union Society, um, which didn't specifically campaign for women's suffrage, but did work alongside the NUWSS to make sure that Indian women were not ignored in the debate around the vote. So, you know, making sure it was not done on a on a racial or, you know, um, kind of country by country basis to actually acknowledge yeah. that Indian women should be included. So I think that's quite an interesting one that a lot of people tend not to, to kind of know of um, because it's not so specific um, to suffrage. Um, my favourite one, uh, I think... Um, Oh, I don't know. I do like the church, the league, the church league for women's suffrage, because you don't tend to associate churches at that time with campaigning for women to get the vote. Um, so that's yeah. quite a good one. Uh, you've you've got the men's league for women's suffrage. So, you know, a party formed so men could back up some of the arguments the women were putting forward, um, which is, again, you know, amazing. Male allies are always a good thing. Um, and then in, in amongst that, you also have the anti suffrage parties Cash. this was the one i was going to talk about say? This. yeah <laughs> this is, this is the... i saw that i saw that kind of look and i was like maybe <laughs> the... um yeah so the anti the women's it's the it's the women's national anti-league for, anti-suffrage league i think is the wording women's national anti-suffrage league um and they're interesting because they're actually not totally against women getting the vote it's where they're allowed to vote is the interest. So they actually don't mind women getting the vote in local elections, but mm-hmm. not parliamentary elections. And their logic 
is amazing because their idea is local elections will deal with domestic things that women care about and have a say on, like housing and childcare and things like that. Whereas parliamentary yeah. elections are all about war and industry and bus drivers and women can't do those things, so therefore they shouldn't vote on them. And that's basically their whole principle. <laughs> it's it's an interesting logic. I seem to recall as well that there was one and I'm going to use the wide term that I think it was WSPU, but there was what they referred to as a suffragette protest that was actually broken up by the Women's Anti-Suffrage League as well. They, uh, they smacked them around a bit with their own placards, which I'm I sure just that is, I'm caught sure. me so by surprise. Yeah, I'm sure that is true. My my favourite scenario is when we, when we walk around Bloomsbury on one of our tours, you've got the... Um, the address of Mrs. Humphrey Ward, who was one of the leaders of the anti, she was the, I think she was like one of the the, the main founders of the anti-suffrage league. And then like 30 seconds away, you have the place where Millicent Garrett Fawcett lived. And I just, in my head, I think of this awkward situation of the two of them seeing each other from across the road and deciding to just turn and walk the other way because nobody <laughs> wants that interaction on the street. But it just shows how close some of these parties were like they were they were neighbors effectively um yeah. so yeah it's it's really interesting how intertwined everything is moving on to the more kind of like deeds not words sides of things which which by the way it's always annoyed me that deeds not words is it's not a demand of the government, is it? It's a demand of the movement. Yeah. So they're to stop talking and they're to start actually doing something as opposed to what you see everybody saying, which is, oh, this is a ch- chance of the government. It isn't. Yeah. So it's very much about kind of like the way the women saw the, the kind of movement forming, you know, for, I think people sometimes underestimate how long the suffrage question had been going on for, you know, this idea of women's suffrage in 1903 is, it's already a 35 year old debate where women have been campaigning, petitions are being signed. This isn't new. You know, you're starting to see the movement happening much earlier than people realize. And basically the suffragettes had realized that words were not going to be the thing that got they could stand there all day and talk to someone and tell them why they should have the vote but actually action is is something a bit more effective and to an extent they're right you know there is something more for the media to grab onto and it revives the movement a little bit that had become quite stale so you do very much see that idea of you know action being the way um i think my favorite quote is if men like war so much let's declare war on men um which i think is one of the <laughs> the pankhursts that comes out and says that um so it's quite a quite a good way to being like this is a war um rather than just yeah. like peaceful protest <laughs> well attacking the golf clubs was uh, was always going to hit the where it hurts <laughs> as well yeah they do know how to pick their targets so <laughs> which leads us neatly then into into Kyle's first question so uh, dive us in there then Kyle yeah so what are the deeds what sort of uh, activities things things we'd call um direct action today what are they what are the suffragettes actually yeah so i think very much kind of before i would say black friday in november 1910 uh, the movement was much more focused on kind of physical kind of protests uh marches um there are occasional civil kind of disputes so for example going to a political rally and standing up in the middle of it and yelling out are you going to give women the vote and then being like forced out of the hall and slapping a police officer and i think that's kind of very much like where everything was at. Uh, And then after the violence that takes place in the protest of Black Friday in Parliament Square, um, 
they adopt a much more kind of, I, I like to think of it kind of like guerrilla tactics. So we're not mm. so much going to be so fi- visible. Instead, we're going to attack at night and we're going to smash some windows. Uh, we're going to put bombs in places like uh, public transport, uh, Westminster Abbey, uh, St. Paul's Cathedral, places like that. Um, this is very much like 1913-14 suffrage, though. So it didn't just, I think that's actually another thing people forget is they did in 1903 just drop put a bomb in Westminster Abbey and say give us the vote you know that was after 10 years of being pushed back pushed back pushed back they were like right what else can we do then um so yeah and obviously I think the hunger strike former protest as well when they're in prison Mm. um the women's freedom league chained themselves to the grill at the women's gallery in parliament so it's a real variety of things and as I said earlier, some of the suffragettes, I would say by like 1912, there was a lot of people who were like, huh, this is this is going quite far. You know, we're starting to really put the public at risk. Um, and, you know, it was was dividing the, the movement. Um, other things I'm trying to think, uh, British Museum, they attacked an Egyptian mummy there. Um, I know they slashed two paintings, one at the gallery, one at the National Portrait Gallery. Yeah. So, yeah. We've got up here in Leeds and our local museum has got the Leonora uh, crowbar Cohen. that Leonora Cohen threw through the uh, crown jewels. I was so, yeah. so angry when I went to Leeds because I've only ever been to Leeds once in my life and it was this year. I was in York, went over to Leeds um, and went to the museum and the crowbar wasn't on display and I was so mad because ah. I was like, <laughs> am I ever going to return to Leeds? Probably not. And this was my one opportunity to see the crowbar. <laughs> yeah, I know they, the, they have the crowbar there, but... Alas, it was not. But yeah, we, <laughs> we tend to get this. We tend to get this argument um, from some historians and just uh, that wider perception that suffragettes, they you, you're smashing windows. You're not really a threat to the public. But as I understand it, they they were actually kind of dropping letter bombs into post offices without any hint as to when these are going to go off or if they're going off. Those nail bombs on the tube. Yeah. I would Yes, it's quite militant stuff, mm. isn't it? So I would say with that, with regards to the windows, it was very much the idea that if women are gonna to go to prison, I think the quote from uh Sylvia Pankhurst is let it be the windows of the government we smash rather than the bones of the women. And this was after women had been mistreated so badly during some of the mm-hmm. protests and you know women were returning with broken bones to Caxton Hall. So I think the attitude of breaking windows was something that was inspired by one thing. And then it allowed it that kind of militancy yeah. to evolve. And it was 100% interpretive. You know, there are Emily Welding Davison is a really good example of this, the suffragette who died at Epsom. Um, because leading up to Epsom, the WSP had started distancing themselves from her activity because she was even going a little too far for them. So I think it it opens up to that individual interpretation. And this is where Emmeline Pankhurst kind of loses control a little bit, is that she's not like going through and saying, right, on the 3rd of November 1914, oh, sorry, 1913, we're going to do this activity and these are the women going to do it. It's not really like that. It's very much like, okay, let's just keep the momentum going and women are interpreting that and coming up with their own ideas. Um, and so some women weren't happy that it was going to harm the public. And some felt that that was actually necessary to make the point. So, yeah, it is it is a bit strange because it 
they do get lucky and that's something I'm sure will annoy some people but <laughs> I believe that they got lucky because there are there are moments where you're like you know when the bomb goes off at Westminster Abbey um people are destroyed but you know because people were injured by some of the the kind of um shrapnel flying around but no one dies from it yeah do they know that but that's luck more than anything else yeah yeah how much do I believe that they knew that no one would get seriously injured I don't think you put a bomb in a public place without considering that that might be a possibility so I do they do get a little bit lucky um, I would say there's a there's a really great book out there that if you don't mind me plugging a book over <laughs> okay. and above the tour company. So you... <laughs> Excellent. That really great book out there called Death in 10 Minutes by Fern Riddell, yes. which is the biography of Kitty Marion, yes. a German musical performer who joins up with the WSPU. And she's really hardcore. Yeah, I've read it. And she, uh, I mean... Yeah, she, I think she was force-fed more than any other suffragette, I think, is the fact. Yeah, it sounds like 230-odd yeah. times or something. Like Emily Wilde Davis, once. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, yeah, it's something with Kitty that's quite interesting as well, because she was German. So as soon as the war broke out, the suffrage party were like, oh, we don't really know this woman. Who is she? <laughs> like, kind of thing. Um, because of, of the oh, First World War. So, yeah. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So we've gone through there quite a few things, and it's main, mainly the WSPU that are that are committing these particular acts. Is that right? <sighs> yeah. Going back to all the other organisations yeah, that you've got involved I, there. I, yeah, I would say I would say mainly. Yeah, I I feel like the census stuff comes out of the tax resistance, but that again is more civil kind of disobedience, not signing yeah. the census. Um, so yeah, I'm not. No, oh, the the East London Federation of Suffragettes are still are still smashing windows and things like that. So they're, but they don't form until early 1914. So they haven't got mm. long to kind of get going. But and again, they're formed by Sylvia Pankhurst as one of the founding members. So they do adopt some of the tactics of the WSPU. But I would say predominantly, yeah, it's it's them that are the most militant. How much does, in your opinion, then, does the, do these actions kind of help or harm their their cause? Um, it, from where I'm sitting, it probably does both. 
Okay, so... But it's not clear where. I'm a Libra, which means nothing to most people. This means I always like to look at both arguments. Yeah. I like to... I'm very neutral in this, uh, which is probably not good for a History Rage podcast because I'm going to propose the most neutral thing, which is I actually think to a point mm. they helped because they made it global. They got it recognised. America were like can you come here and do tours, you know, talk to us about what's getting them going. The media loved it. You know, the, 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 the headlines yeah. that year, are, you know, those years are crazy. However, by 1914, they were pushing it so far that they were beginning to isolate some of their kind of allies in parliament. And I think that the outbreak of the war actually it comes at a good time for the suffrage movement and that's you know we could talk hypotheticals but i think without it i don't know how much more damage would have been done and how much more damage that would have done to the suffrage question as it was what happened is the war broke out and the women kind of went well this is not the right time so let us let us help and you know that kind of settles things down and they become recognized as allies rather than kind of against them so I think it helps to a point and then it yeah it very much starts detracting from it a little bit. Um, you know, when the representation of the People's Act gets pushed through Parliament in 1917 before it becomes into effect, um, it's Millicent Garrett Fawcett who's there, you know, the leader of the NUWSS. Emmeline Pankhurst's not there being invited to, you know, check that the bill is correct and see who's going to mm. vote it through. So it's, yeah, I think it, I think it does again get lucky but it doesn't do too much damage before it can be reversed <laughs> yeah i suppose one of the things it, it does do with this level of militancy is it prevents asquith from just brushing it under the carpet and just kicking it down into the further long grass yeah uh, which i kind of get the impression he dearly liked to do a hundred percent i mean some of the like you know p politics around it and some of the debates going on in Parliament are just very telling of the, the fear they had on some of the, the reactions they get if they didn't give, you know, the vote. Even in, you know, 1917, when they're debating the representation of the People's Act, they're basically doing it because they're realising actually some men can't vote. And these are men who are fighting over in the war. Now, the, mm -hmm. the, the fact that they're about to change the suffrage bill and they're not going to consider women after everything that's happened is is just not it's just not possible you know you imagine the riots you would have had in, on your hands you're going to the extent to change it include some women so i think it does push it to a point where it has to happen at some point um it's just yeah like i said it did isolate some of the allies that they had as well yeah i mean you kind of hint there what your kind of rage, rage phrase was about that so if we're talking the first world war yeah. and it's it's not the work that the women did during the first world war that got them the vote <sighs> yeah <laughs> what is it uh okay so the first big misconception around that is if you think about who's doing most of the legwork in the first world war for women it is factory work it is you know textiles it is women taking over 
you know, jobs in London, you know, bus drivers, mm-hmm. tram drivers, stuff like that. Now, those women would have been predominantly from working class backgrounds. They would have yep. usually been a bit younger. Okay. And so when the representation of the People's Act comes in and gives women over the age of 30 the vote, if they are of a wealthy enough status, et cetera, et cetera, those women who work so hard for four years in the war are, are not able to vote. Still so not getting the vote. They, they yeah. don't have the vote in 1918. They don't. And they have to wait a further 10 years to get it. So, you know, this this whole misconception around women were... I actually... My history teacher, Mr. Moore, if you're listening, I apologise for outing you. But he literally told us in class that the reason women got the vote was because they did stuff in the war. And I was like, okay, that seems simple. And as we've learned, it's not. It's so much more complex. So that big misconception... Um, you know, why did they get the vote? Well, the campaign had been going on for long enough. You know, women were pushing it through. Um, they did have politicians on side. You know, they had a men's league for women's suffrage. These are not random men. These are intellects. They're left wing. Yeah. They're Some of them are politicians, you know. So it's after many, many decades of a long, hard fought fight and the bill was being edited and you have women there who are saying, hang on a minute, if you're going to edit the bill, give us something, you know, and and they do. So I think it's very simplified if you just say women got the vote because of the war, but it's also incorrect because those women were not have been able to vote in 1918. Yeah, the women who did get the vote weren't really doing anything. The yeah. stuff in the war. Well, yeah, that, that we think that of. They, they were probably doing. They were probably doing their bit. Yeah, they weren't not doing stuff. But were was Emmeline Pankhurst grafting in a munitions factory? Of course not. You know, um, she she would have been. Christabel Pankhurst was even in the country, was she? Uh during the war. Oh, I don't know. I know she was in France leading up to it, um, and she moves to America after. So I'm not sure where she is during the war. But yeah. Um, Oh, I just, yeah, it just simplifies it too much for me. And I think that's why it makes me kind of angry, just because as we, it's not a simple situation. It can't be. Um, so don't simplify it. So with all this that we're saying here then, um, and that these, the women that have done the legwork in the war have to wait another 10 years yeah. uh, in order to vote, despite all those uh, new laws. Is it right that we celebrate women getting the vote in 1918 to, when most of them still couldn't and should we and i'm i want you to join in my campaign here that that we should be celebrating the centenary in 2028 as well okay so yes we definitely have to celebrate it because it's a milestone in history and a centenary raises so much profile behind a historical subject you know you look at what goes on once you're reaching the 100 years you get more funding into things think of how many statues to women have been unveiled in the last three four years around the country because of the centenary vote 100 because of the awareness books have been published programs you know this is all good stuff for the for the education around these things okay so 100 percent celebrate a centenary of something when you say most people it's not like we're not talking 20 percent of people it's 40 percent of the female population was able to vote in 1918 so i feel like it's enough that it's the, yeah, that it's okay. Do you know what I mean? If it was ten percent, I think mm. we can maybe we can maybe debate yeah. it a bit more. But eight and a half million women, forty percent of the female population. I think it's a pretty good yeah, wedge in a door a go. Yeah. for for us to celebrate. We should, however, still focus on nineteen twenty eight 
because and and I actually think you know coming coming up to 1928 there will be some stuff around you know kind of the centenary of that the flapper election in 1929 where all women over the age of 21 could vote. You know, I think there will be stuff. And I, I agree, we should celebrate that. And uh, I intend to, and I'm hoping that there will be stuff around it. I'll be surprised if there if there isn't. But I think the 1918 celebration allows us to then be educated enough yeah. to celebrate 1928. I can't, I don't think you can miss it out. Well, 2028, I'll come to London and we, we will march ourselves through London in celebration of the centenary. women's history yeah. tours and they will be centenary specials. So come along. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So we've built up this uh, the story, the narrative of what the suffragettes are and were. Um, how much of that is based around what the suffragettes themselves wanted to be, particularly what the Pankhursts wanted their story to be? So I kind of struggled with this question a little bit and that's just because mm. I feel like the narrative of suffrage was was it, it was changed because of the war after the war they didn't really mm. want to focus so much on the violence of it because of the, the mentality in the country as well um and I feel like you know Emmeline doesn't live long enough to really decide what narrative they're going to give her give her you know she, yeah. she dies in 1928 so mm-hmm. she's not she's not like living till the 70s and being able to say you know I'm going to publish a biography I'm going to record things you know we have very few voices of the suffragettes that you can see Leonora Cohen being an example you know you can hear her yeah on the British Library website and you can hear about what she wants she was doing and why she was doing it. So I think the narrative is is a lot more I want to say because of historians and you know b- the way the history has been written is it, it is simplified yeah. and it is what we know. And so I don't think it's necessarily at fault for the pankhursts in this case. And when we say pankhursts I mean again we're generalizing so Emmeline is one, Christabel's another. Yeah. Christabel, what did she do after the suffrage? Nothing. She went to America, became super religious. Good times. <laughs> <laughs> like she doesn't go around like publishing books. I would say yeah. Sylvia's probably the most the most active in that sense. You know, she tries to she publishes a book about the suffrage movement, which I think a lot of people, you know, kind of base a lot of this kind of ideas around. Mm. But she's also campaigning for independent rule for colonized areas for Britain, like, you know, in Ethiopia and places like that. So it's, I think, very much the narrative. Yeah, I don't think it's so much like steered by the Pankhursts. I think it's something that history has just done. And I think it's context. I think it's, you know, um, I think the First World War you can't ignore because what you don't want to do when you're talking about the history of the First World War is then talk about the violence that was back home the years leading up to that. You know, it's not, yeah. um, it doesn't work so much. So, yeah, I would blame historians as one myself. I'm allowed to do that. So. <laughs> yes. You're, you're among fellow our runners fault. here. Everything is our fault. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, whilst we're on the subject of the Pankhursts, um, what do they We've already discussed this slide, but what do they do after the war and after the representation of the People Act? Okay, so Emmeline Pankhurst weirdly Uh. becomes super conservative and historians do not know why. She said, I think it was because she... So she went to America, she went to Canada for a Mm. bit 
And she actually worked alongside some of the the sexually transmitted diseases and the laws around that in Canada. Um, Apparently, she hated Canadian winters. So she moved back to London. Um, Is that the only time somebody's moved to London for the weather? (laughs) The weather. I think she. I think she did kind of run out of money as well. I think that might have played a part. But also the other one. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, like I said earlier, she tried to stand as a member of Parliament in 1926, I think it is, but as a member of the Conservative Party. So, you know, this wasn't the Liberals. These aren't the Labour Party. She's standing as a Conservative member. Um, and that's quite a jump for somebody yeah. who was very closely linked with Keir Hardy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm honest. I'm going to be honest. Uh, if, there are many reasons why it may have happened. Uh, I've I've read things like you know people naturally get more conservative as they get older. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um. Do they though? I don't know. I've just, I'm yeah. just, I'm throwing out some theories. Uh, the other was yep. that actually the things in going on in Canada were actually, you know, kind of changed her opinion on on what was important. Um, mm-hmm. So she does talk about like being across the pond, being, you know, really enlightening for her that actually being a conservative didn't seem so bad after all or something along those lines Who'd and i'm thought? sorry to, to any canadians who are listening to this um these are her words not mine so yeah she does i mean she she does go on to do some stuff but yeah she doesn't she doesn't stand because a scandal around sylvia um who has a baby out of wedlock um and even in 1926 that was still not acceptable. So Emmeline's idea of being a member of the Conservative Party is completely thrown out. And yeah, she retires to a nursing home in Hampstead and dies just two years later. So she doesn't live a very, I mean, I think she was 69 when she died. So mm-hmm. yeah, not, not a very long life. Um, Christabel goes to America, becomes really religious, apparently appears on some TV shows in the 1950s, apparently read this. Would like yeah. to see this. I think it's something we should all we should all have to watch. Um, and uh, yeah, not, doesn't really really do anything. I think her biggest shift. Um, I always think of sliding doors. If one thing had happened, maybe she would have gone on. Um, is that she loses the 1918 general election for the Women's Party that she attempts to stand in. So she's one of the members who stands in that first election where women can vote and stand as MPs. And um, yeah, she loses it by, I think it's just under 800 votes. Um, And I think Mm -hmm. if she had won the seat, she would have gone on to spend the rest of her life doing other things, but she loses the seat. She doesn't know how to recover from it. And so she goes to America and gets involved with the church there. So um, yeah, it's a bit of a sliding door moment for her, I think. Um, Sylvia, I mentioned baby at wedlock, massive supporter of the Russian revolution. So she becomes very, oh dear. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, her, her, she's actually advised at the time to maybe distance herself from Lenin's politics. And she's like, no, it's fine. This is great. This is what we should be doing in Britain. Um, so yeah, she's, uh, she's an interesting one, but she ends up, um, going to Ethiopia and working on British, kind of rule there and occupation Mm -hmm. and i mean she was adored because she was given a a proper funeral in ethiopia and she's the only non i think it's the only non-native to be buried in their their big churchyard 
Um, So she was given an honorary Ethiopian status upon her death. So, you know, they do go on to do some things. But one thing you would have noticed is that none of them keep campaigning for the vote. Yeah, it's kind of smacks a little bit of not just women getting the vote, but those women getting the vote. Yes. Mm. What, What sort of campaigns go on after the representation of the People Act? I actually don't think there's enough written about this period. And if I ever do write a book, this is going to probably be what I focus it on. Um, There's the National Union of Women's Suffrage Society switches to, I think it's the National National Union of Women's Equal Society, I think is the wording they use. And the idea is that, okay, we've got the suffrage and we're going to work with these MPs like, you know, the first, the first ones that get elected. And we're going to start trying to remind them that not all women have the vote and get to equal suffrage. But in the meantime, can we also focus on things like equal pay, um, things like bars in jobs, like the Sex Discrimination Act that comes in in mm-hmm. 1920 is led by ex-members of the NUWSS. You know, these are jobs that women can take up, like standing as lawyers. So they very much are charged. And I think it's a result of a couple of things. They know that the women's vote is not going to be edited that quickly. There's factors involved. They've only just got some women the vote. They're not going to get it a year later. Okay. There's going to have to be a gap. Um, yeah. Whilst that gap happens, what else can we focus on? We've got this momentum now. Where can we get to? And I think that's something that the attitudes of the, the suffrage movement switches to. It's more about for equal society, opening job opportunities, protecting marriage laws and things like that, that that become more of the focus after after the end of um, the First World War with the, the first act. Um, the Women's Freedom League continue. So they're another one. They break up officially in 1961. So, Good yeah. Lord. That, yeah, that's quite a career. Yeah, they're, they're actually one of the first groups that start um, pushing for female peership in the House of Lords as well. Um, and that doesn't happen till 1958. Don't quote yeah. me on that. <laughs> I think yeah, so around about that time. So, uh, so yeah, so they, uh, they're, they're pushing for things like that. So I, I do think it's, I mean, can you keep talking about suffrage after you've just got, them? I was thinking of it like a, like a, a door kind of jarring itself open and then you just need someone to like, just kind of tip it with a tiny finger push. And that's like the next bit, like it's going to happen. Yeah. It's just a matter of when. Um, and I think one of the defining factors, which I think is something to think about is, you know, about the, the kind of death rate of men in the First World War throws off the population balance. You know, you all of a sudden have more women than men. So you can't, or you can, but they were never going to give equal suffrage at the same time. So, you know, you've got to wait for a generation or so to fill that 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 number gap, which I think right. is a telling point. So, Yeah, I never really thought about that. That's probably down to Andy telling us that the First World War wasn't as bad as was made out, but you know, never, never listen to military historians, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you very much for that, Becky. Thank you very much because that was just a massive eye opener into an oversimplified, massively oversimplified area of uh, of history. Um, That, to be honest, was as guilty then of being overtaken by narratives that serve a purpose rather than uh, actual facts and that can still carry on to today so thank you for at least smashing that window for us (laughs) thank you for having me i hope it was ragey enough (laughs) 
That was excellent. Did you enjoy it? I did. Yeah. It was do you really feel good. better? I do. It's kind of therapeutic. You guys just start charging. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's five pound per month on Patreon. You can come and join it. Well. If you'd like to know more, then you can and should get on board with any and all of Becky's tours of London. And you can find their details at www.womenoflondon.org.uk. And we will have a link to that in the show notes. And you can follow them on Twitter at Women of LDN and Becky individually at B. Laxton Bass. But uh, once again, Becky, that was incredible. Thank you very much for uh, bringing your rage. Thank you very much. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Baffle. And I'm at Kyle G History. And we'd love you to join our angry mob on Patreon. This really helps us meet the cost of podcasting. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, entry into all of our prize draws, the invite to put questions to future guests, and of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next week, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.